On Thursday, the 24th of March of this week, Thomas Adams, the John Hay Professor of Bibliography at Brown University and University Bibliographer, formerly the librarian of the John Carter Brown Library at Brown University, will be speaking on his 25 years' experience as librarian there. That's at 6 o'clock in this room. On Monday, the 4th of April, Michael Crump, who is assistant editor of the 18th Century Short Title Catalog Operations in London, will be speaking on the 18th Century Short Title Catalog, Past and Future. And on Tuesday, his boss's boss's boss, Alexander Wilson, who is the director general of the British Library Reference Division, will be speaking on the problems of incorporating rare books into general collections. That's Tuesday, April 5th, again at 6 p.m., again in this room, and again you're all cordially invited to attend. Our speaker this evening is Charles Tannenbaum, a book collector of considerable celebrity in this town and others, whose most recent comments on the world of rare books appears in the proceedings recently published of the conference on deaccessioning held at Brown University again in June of 1981. Imaginative and provocative comments there, and imaginative and provocative comments forthcoming right now, I'm sure. Mr. Charles Tannenbaum. Thank you. Uh, to introduce myself, I, am, I have been a student at Columbia. I was here from 59 to 63 in the Department of uh, Graduate Faculty in the Department of Public Law and Government. And I hold an ABD from Columbia, for those of you who know what that is. Uh, at that point, I dropped out. I did a little teaching. And in the, it's really since then that my interest in rare books has developed. So I'm a newcomer in this field. I think I did it because I found books speaking to me. And uh, I really somehow got something out of original material that I hadn't gotten in any other form. And then this made me begin to think of how to communicate it to other people. So in a sense, I'm really not so much a collector as a missionary uh, who believes that somehow the faith has to be propagated to a new generation. Now, the proposition, is this coming true all right, Terry? Not too loud, not too soft? All right. Uh, let me simply set the stage in this sense. As I see cost and space pressures turning libraries into information warehouses full of fiche and librarians at computer consoles, I suspect the importance of the traditional form of the book will diminish. Will rare book rooms as we now know them become vestigial or will they become more important? This basically is the question I pose. The Chinese have a word like crisis, which is written in two characters. One of them, danger, the other, opportunity. The danger, I think, is a simple one. And Mark McCarrison, at this conference, put it in these words, and I quote, I have thought about the function of a rare book room in an undergraduate college or in a small university. There can be no doubt that students should be exposed to examples of great works of human culture in significant forms or editions. But does the cost of maintaining that rare book room warrant the keeping of yet another collection of limited editions club volumes. A college president once asked me why a college should support a rare book room. I answered with a flush of certainty that if a college could support a football team, then it ought to support a rare book room. Now I am not so certain 
and the question is worth keeping before us always. I am not sure that the rare book room as a status symbol is going to survive that easily. And I suspect that many universities are taking a hard look at the cost effectiveness of the rare book libraries and asking questions such as, how many scholars within or without the university actually use the research facilities? And how important is their research? How many members of the faculty utilize the collection, either for their own research or in teaching? And I think the bottom line, how many students enter the rare book library and for what purpose and with what results? So let me then address myself to what I see. I am fundamentally an optimist. What do I see as the opportunity for the rare book libraries of the future? I am convinced that those of you, and I'm now speaking in part, really, essentially, to the rare book librarians of the future, and I'm delighted that there are a number of you here tonight. You're the real person to whom I'm speaking. Uh, I'm convinced that those of you seeking to make this your career should go beyond your traditional role and seek a larger share in the educational process itself to provide all liberal arts students with some awareness of the book and the printed word and to provide a nursery for the potential collectors, dealers, and rare book librarians of the future. This, then, is the proposition that I present to you. Now, I'm not going to just, uh, incidentally, uh, I call your attention to the remarks of David Stamm at the Rare Book Conference and Manuscript Pre-Conference in Philadelphia in July 7th. He has sent me, I don't know whether it's been published or not, but he, uh, I think this is a good statement at length. I'm, I'm not going to go into anything. I'm going to speak simply from my own personal experience, the ways in which I personally have tried to reach out to students. Now, uh, I do so without noting that I've had no professional training. I'm an amateur. With this disclaimer, let me first turn to the field of exhibitions, where I've been active for the past decade with extensive involvement in a dozen different exhibits. Now, a few thoughts. I see the exhibition as an art form built around a central theme or themes, which are developed almost by analogy to a musical composition. As an example, my first exhibit at the New York Society Library in 1974, entitled British Friends of the American Revolution, Terry, I brought along some of my catalogs, which you're welcome to have if anybody wants to look at them afterwards. Uh, British Friends of the American Revolution consisted of pamphlets by Englishmen like Burke who attacked the war policy of the British government. My theme on the eve of the bicentennial was to show the British were not all bad or all supporters of George III, and also suggest a parallel to the anti-war movement in this country in the case of Vietnam. I see that as really the two levels I was aiming at, an added meaning to the past and a relevance to the present. Now, the library was kind enough to print a catalog, and in that, I provide a sense of continuity to the exhibit. Uh, and this is a form of catalog I've struggled with so that your checklist presents the material in sequence with connecting text that somehow tells a story. Now, this exhibit had the drawback that they consisted solely of pamphlets. The title pages were dull. I learned my lesson. It was unreadable. I mean, it was, as an exhibition, it was a fail. 
And I think of it as a small piece for the piano. And I've learned the importance of orchestrating an exhibit with strings and wind instruments. So that this was my second lesson. Uh, the next exhibit I had was the Grolia Club Bicentennial Prelude to Independence in 1974. This was a pre presentation of the pamphlets of the American Revolution on both sides, the Tory and loyal, uh, the Tory and Patriot America, the government and anti-government in England, so that you could follow the debate throughout that. But this time, I learned to bring in uh, visual material. We had a large number of political cartoons from Wilmoth Lewis's collection. We had maps, and we had a few trumpets, like the original broadside of the Declaration of Independence and the copper plate uh, for the uh, uh, Paul Revere's Boston Massacre, which we persuaded uh, Boston, uh, Boston, not Boston, uh, Boston State House to lend us. So this concept of the visual presenting the same material on a larger scale, but in a setting which was really orchestrated. Now, let me then suggest my approach to choosing the theme of an exhibition, because I think I approach it from the reverse of most exhibitions. I suspect most librarians select what they consider an interesting portion of their collection and then build an ex exhibition around it. I approach from the opposite. I start with an idea or theme and then figure how to illustrate it in exhibition form. I'll give you a few more of this, but I think as you see as I develop, it is a different concept. It is using, attempting to use the exhibition as an educational tool with the emphasis not so much on the rarity or value of the individual piece, but how it fits into telling and developing a story that people have not perhaps seen in that context. I then prepare a rough outline of the sections of the exhibit, the type of items to be used. Now, the first time I did this one in really a grand scale was in 1976 for the Bicentennial of the Grolier Club. I suggested that our preoccupation with what was happening in America made us overlook the brilliance of the European scene. So the exhibition was Europe in 1776. Here is the catalog, checklist again, but with continuity, and what it presents. And here, I think, just showing the sections of it. Highlights of 1776 from Edward Gibbon's History of the Klein Fall of the Roman Empire, uh, Thomas Paine's Common Sense in Rotterdam, where it was revolutionary, uh, Bentham, uh, Adam Smith's Cause of Nations. There were 18 different items, which in the year 1776 were of central importance. Then I went on a view of the times, uh, we had maps and uh, engravings illustrating the situation. We had the world of thought. Uh, we had the world design. The Cooper Hewitt lent us design material. Here, this idea of illustrating. Uh, and here for the bass drum, I don't know whether any of you know the Baskerville elephant polio of Dr. Hunter's gravid uterus. This was opened to the huge illustration of a fetus in utero. No one could walk into that room without suddenly being hit with this uh, note. So this question, again, of orchestration, of seeing this as an attempt to present material that produces a diversified impact. Now, 
Now, that was an exhibition, the 1776, of taking a point in time to carry the viewer back to it to get the feel, the look, the spell of the period in a diversity of areas. Now, another way of approaching this anniversary uh, was one I tried at Exeter, uh, and I was interested there because they had a beautiful library. I don't know whether any of you have ever seen the new Exeter Library. No, no, this is the Exeter, Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire. Here is the library, and it has a lovely rotunda, and on either side, two small exhibition cases that were practically unusable. Uh, by persuading them to bring out additional cases and creating a circular rotunda, and this shows that with the cases around here, so that we got about 70 pieces into that. So that, and they have since then been mounting exhibitions. Uh, the theme of this was the bicentennial of the French Alliance of 1778. My thesis here was we had neglected in recent years the importance of the French influence in this country. We started with the early French explorers, uh, Charlevoix and De Soto, to give that setting. We then went on to the French role in the revolution itself, and probably the high point there was a map uh, of the battle in which the French fleet defeated the British fleet in the Battle of Chesapeake Bay. I suspect that 90% of you do not realize that the reason we won the Battle of Yorktown was because the French drove the British away so they could relieve Cornwallis, and they put a cork in the Chesapeake. Uh, the use of this was to emphasize in this exhibit to the students up there the importance of the French during the Revolution, then to carry it on to de Tocqueville, so that your theme there was to say to a preparatory school, stop and think at this moment of the significance of France in the early years. Uh, again, a teaching uh, attempt at an exhibition. Now, uh, let me take another approach. I hope I'm not going on too much on these, Terry. Uh, I think this is probably the most creative area that I've worked with is in terms of exhibitions. Uh, another approach is to take an area or a subject and portray it through time. Here, this I did at Stanford last year. And I felt in the West there was a tendency to feel that the British colonies in the East Coast that were important in our formative country were somehow very remote. And my approach to it was to say, let us take a sequence of maps from coast to coast so that one sees not only the evolution of a nation from British colonies along the East Coast, but the Spanish on the West Coast, the French in the River Valley, we started from 1587, the title, From Wilderness to Nation, a sequence of maps, and here I think the use of coast to coast, so that you saw the same area in a sequence of maps from 1587 to 1856, until the last piece was put in with the Gadsden Purchase, so you saw the present continental United States in the final form. Uh, I saw this as, again, another concept exhibition running through time. Now, uh, I'm now working on one, currently, 
and I thought I'd throw this out, and you can each see how you would want to play with it. Uh, I think you know the counties of New York are celebrating the tercentenary of the division of the province of New York into counties. You're aware of it. You don't. All right. All right, then. I'm on, I'm on the committee that's supposedly organizing and helping organize the celebration in New York County. We're behind. Staten Island's ahead, Westchester, so forth. And they're all talking about how do you celebrate at the centenary. Now, nobody seemed to say, why? What is the story behind it? So I did a little research, and it was not difficult. Uh, first, I discovered, the first question was, why was the, provinces the province divided into counties in 1683? The answer being, there was unrest in the colonies because it was being governed by a British royal governor with a small private council, and there was no representative body. And a new governor came over, Governor Dongan, and with him, the instruction to create a representative body, the General Assembly. The significance was it was the first establishment of representative government in, this, what is in, in the New York through the division of the province into 12 counties, each of which were authorized to appoint, to elect a certain number of delegates to a General Assembly. The establishment of the General Assembly in New York dates from 1683. The creation of counties, it varies from many of the other states, the New England ones, where town government formed the nucleus. Now, with this uh, background, I see this exhibit as a challenge to tell something about development and evolution of representative government starting from that point. Second possible theme to it. The man who did it, Dongan, Thomas Dongan, was an Irishman. I think it's of some interest here in the ethnic sense that perhaps this is an opportunity to suggest the Irish theme in New York City. And the third one, I also discovered that Dongan was the man who gave the first charter to the city of New York. Again, what, what is the point of giving a charter? So I decided to read the charter. And of course it recites that for many years the mayor and aldermen have been governing this city and they've built public buildings and they've done this suddenly and they form the mayor and they give them a territory, Manhattan Island plus some outside islands, and they convey to the city the vacant land in that area. Now think of the impact of that. Up until that point, there was a government in Lower Manhattan, operated happily, with nothing more than a couple of public buildings. And the rest of the area belonged to the royal government as a part of the province, undedicated land. Suddenly, in this one sweep, Dongan created Manhattan, created government for Manhattan, and said all the unoccupied, undeeded land belongs to that governmental body. Think of the impact. Is this something worth celebrating in some form? This is where I say, as you go into it, it's trying to find the meaning and significance of an event one seeks to commemorate. Now, let me suggest a few do's and don'ts that I've learned the hard way. First of all, get all the publicity you can. I was very fortunate uh, at the Stanford exhibit, I got a lovely article picture. They took the map of California in the period when California was an island with a lead article. Maybe they anticipated the fact that California is sailing away on its own. Uh, 
the uh, get faculty support, ongoing interest, and I suggest here that an exhibition program is almost like a repertory theater. You have to create an interest. I think here the libraries are way behind the museums. I think the museums have realized in recent years that to reach the public, you have to develop programs, outreach, and I think what I'm speaking to basically in its, and the subject is outreach, the role of the librarian in an outreach to a community, not simply to wait until the student comes to him. And that one of the ways of doing this program of outreach is through exhibitions. Now, I'll try to be brief on these few points. Uh, don't leave exhibits up too long. This is a lazy man's habit. The exhibit gets a stay look, and the material may suffer from overexposure and fatigue. Do make friends with the design staff of the library and get them involved in dis display material, blow-ups, so as to provide a sense of visual excitement. Work closely with the conservation department so that the material is presented at its best and the risk of damage is minimized. At Stanford, we had both of these groups working very closely with us in the whole thing, and they are also trying to develop an exhibition specialist uh, to work on their exhibition program. I don't know whether any of you know, this is the public, the new exhibition area at Stanford of a size you can have two or three simultaneous exhibits. Uh, I think Stanford realized the opportunity and they are talking now about having that as a separate post so that it is not simply a question that the curatorial staff has to find time on their own to arrange exhibitions, which makes it a low priority. Uh, Try to print at least a hand list for each exhibit and at least one real catalog a year. I brought along two small catalogs. One, I was asked to come up to Danbury, Connecticut. I arranged there an exhibition, Connecticut's Early Years. And uh, they put this out. It's a nice, it's very simple, but it's something for people to take away at the end of the exhibit. The other one is I had at Hunter College a bicentennial, New York and London in the era of the American Revolution. It was an attempt to take those two capital cities and interplay them. This was at Hunter on the library floor, in several cases right outside the main library. Uh, I think here a question of the location of an exhibit, whether somehow you can put the exhibit in a, traf in a place where there is traffic. Uh, so that the, person, the student does not have to come to a remote area. Uh, certainly, I imagine Columbia, with it still having its rare book collection up on the sixth floor, realizes how few students will penetrate there. You have to move the exhibit out into an area. It's a traffic pattern. It's like a retail store. You can't have it on the fifth floor walk-up. Uh, now, another comment. Don't, well, I think I've said this before. All right, don't be too scholarly. I think my least successful exhibit was one on the 150th anniversary of Noah Webster's Dictionary in 1978 at the Grolier Club. Noah Webster is one of my favorites. I put everything into it. I had everything, every work of his, letters, a tremendous mass of material. But somehow, I don't think anybody really cared. I was off. And I think this is a danger. You can be carried away with your own enthusiasm, and somehow it doesn't communicate. Uh, so that I think this is a problem. Now, 
So much for the field of exhibitions. Now, another approach to students is through professors and coursework. Uh, one way is to encourage professors to utilize original material in an occasional class where this is effective as a teaching tool. I don't know whether this is done at all here. Uh, it's done out at the uh, University of Berkeley in California. And there they have a seminar room in the rare book library where a professor can conduct a class. The walls are lined with books so as to create the atmosphere of a rare book library. There are behind glass areas where the professor, where the professor can ask the rare book librarian to put up a display for that particular class. He can both put it on glass so nobody can handle it. He can put it on open shelves so it can, so it can be handled. He can have a book, tra a book uh, cart with other material brought to him. He teaches within that setting. He can show, hand around, or do anything he wants to with original material. I think this, I'll never forget, my daughter came back one time up at Brandeis. She'd had an English teach class, and the professor had brought a Shakespeare folio in with her. The impact on her of that Shakespeare folio. I remember having been down with Lessing Rosenwald once talking about Caxton, and he had pulled out a few of his Caxtons, and there were a group of students going through his museum on a guided tour, and he sort of caught them, and he said, here, started to show them this, and they looked, and there was sort of an awed attitude towards this Caxton. Suddenly he said, no, he said, touch it. It was as if it were a piece of the true cross. He was forcing it so that these experiences, I think, are tremendously important. I think that uh, another area, to make rare material available at the reserve room of the rare book library for use by students in courses. And here I'd like to describe an experiment we conducted at Stanford last year. Stanford does not have too many of the American Revolution pamphlets that I collect, and they have a professor of American literature, Jay Flegelman, who's very interested uh, in pamphlets, particularly sermons. He sees the pamphlet as almost the primary literary form of the 18th century. So he was in New York, we went over my library, we picked about 16 of the pamphlets, and I wanted to pick pamphlets that were not so valuable, that I felt uh, would feel a cat catastrophic sense of loss if anything happened, were not so fragile that they were likely to be damaged. We assembled them, we took them out, I took them out to Stanford, I picked them up, they are no worse for wear, they were out there for a year, and not only were they used in this English class, we had an interesting experience that a professor of history Rakov, who specialized in this field, decided he wanted some of his students to write papers on some of these pamphlets. And of course, he said to the class, uh, you won't find, find any originals, but you'll find them in microfiche or copies. One of the students in the class happened to have been on reserve duty at the library and knew of this material. He said, Professor, we've got a lot of it here. <laughs> the consequence of this surprise discovery, and again, a second class of students then used it. Uh, I've taken some material out and left it with the rare book librarian out there for student use, where these are rather intriguing individual items. One of them is I happen to have a fair copy of an Indian agreement in 1682 between the governor of Connecticut and the sachem Uncas. And you read it, and it's a lovely piece of work because this sachem is described as having been very friendly to the Indians for 45 years, friendly to the colonists for 45 years. 
And the governor of Connecticut says he wants to protect this man, his descendants. And suddenly, 10 years later, his son has to go and get this agreement because obviously he's having troubles preserving his rights. Now, the whole question, is this fair copy of 1692? As a challenge to a student to ask questions, what was the situation in Connecticut? That one, I call it a fishhook in history. It's something that gets you intrigued and you start to see the background of it. There were half a dozen. Now, I think this question of being willing to expose original material, not the most valuable, I see it as the analogy in a museum, an art museum, they have seconds, porcelains, for example, uh, that they allow students to handle. So a student gets the feel of it. He doesn't look through it all at glass. I think the same thing, a certain amount of original material should be made available so a student is physically exposed to contact, bodily contact, and intellectual contact. Let it speak to it. Now, uh, next let me turn to, that, that then I see as the role of faculty. And I think it's important for the Rail Book Librarian to build bridges to the faculty, get them interested, offer to be helpful. I have a feeling in many places the faculty and Rail Book Librarian live in two different worlds. Now, then let me t talk to another one. Extracurricular student activities, apart from courses. I think Yale is a model. For example, the printing activities in the various Yale colleges, I don't know how many of you know it, they have printing plants in at least, I think, eight or ten of them. They have prizes. There's tremendous interest in printing. Here, I think, you have a way of getting a student excited. It's a hands-on experience in a craft age. I was out at Santa Cruz campus in California where George Kane uh, teaches a course, and that's recognized as a, a course in the curriculum there, on printing. I think that if it isn't a curriculum course, the idea of getting a printing press somehow and encouraging the development of the use of this printing press so that the student gets exposed. Uh, I think this is a field. Another one, student clubs. Yale has two of them, the Elizabethan Club, and the Jared Elliott Associates. They're both quite interesting. The Elizabethan Club, I think. Any of you know what the Elizabethan Club is? All right. Uh, I forget some rather undistinguished uh, graduate of Yale who remembered with loneliness his undergraduate days, wrote offering to give his library as a sort of a club room for Yale undergraduates who might have felt lonely as he so they could come together. The initial reaction was, oh, until somebody got hold of a list of the books that he was offering Yale. He had, oh, I think several dozen Shakespeare quartos, complete Shakespeare folio, Elizabethan authors in the finest original editions. When they realized what it was, students aren't near it. I think it's kept under lock and key, and once a week they open it. But the idea of a book room for the student where somehow those students who were interested in the book, uh, the idea of having a book collecting prize. They have them at Yale. I was involved in trying to organize one in Harvard. But you almost need to do more than simply have a prize. You have to actively solicit interest. You've got to have somebody who will be a den mother to the students to say, 
collecting books, being interested, this is not something that you should be ashamed of. It, uh, your interest doesn't have to stay in the closet. I think that there's almost a fear today of admitting. And it doesn't have to be terribly valuable. I remember I was the, one of the judges the first year up at Harvard, and somebody presented a group of mad comic books. And I went over, he presented the list of what he had, and I accept it, and I accept the fact that this is a very legitimate collecting field. I did a little study. Uh, the magazine came out and the early issues. To have a complete run of Mad Magazine from the beginning would be a superb collection. A lot of the Mad books came out in original editions. This fellow had just gotten current reprints. He was just kidding. The point is to say to him, look, whatever the field, if you will take it seriously, it is a legitimate field is to learn the skill, to learn to, develop, to become accustomed to this. I think this can be done. And I think here again, the librarian, it is an opportunity and a challenge for the librarian to say, I will be a part of the educational process. I will play a part in the humanities in my school. Now, if we assume that one has this dedication, and here I think I better be fairly short, I'll run through this. What are the implications of outreach in four areas? First place, in staff. From the staff standpoint, outreach functions cannot simply be treated as an additional responsibility for overworked librarians. There has to be a willingness to recognize that this is a part of a job description and that if a person is well qualified to perform the outreach function, he has an opportunity. He is not, it is not either dumped on him as the most junior man or thrown on somebody as additional. Next, and I say here, I would urge beginning librarians to try to gain hands-on experience in arranging exhibitions, mounting material, designing displays, and writing descriptive cards. These are all specialized skills, but I believe this will be a growing field, not only in rare book libraries, but throughout a university library system. Now next, the physical space. It's important that the physical areas within the jurisdiction of the rare book librarian lend themselves to the outreach activities described above. Since I have neither skill nor experience in this field, I'll list, simply list points. First, adequate exhibition space and a location that will encourage student attendance. Secondly, I wonder whether rare book libraries should not encourage assumption of responsibility for exhibition areas outside of their own area. It's a lovely exhibit downstairs of the Washington Irving. Is that conducted by the Rare Book Library, the General Library? Who arranges those cases down there? Do you know, Terry? All right. I think this is ideal. In Stanford, I was discussing this, and I mounted an exhibition from my own collection of legal documents at the law school. The law school there had some nice, secure cases right at the entrance to the library, a perfect place of visibility, and they had nothing in them because nobody really went through the trouble. Uh, I think that here again, peripheral areas where they have secure exhibition space can be used. And if the rare book staff is willing to assume that responsibility, I think it will increasingly justify the salaries that might otherwise be questioned. Because basically, money is the bottom line. To what extent do the rare book librarians earn their pay in terms of producing from a cost-effective basis? And the more functions they can take over, 
it seems to me the more easily they justify the existence of the rare book library, not simply as an ivory tower, but the center of a network of activities throughout the campus. Now, uh, then physical space, this is something I've played with. The idea of having a room, a period room by analogy to what museums have. I was out in Minneapolis and in a small pub local public library, they had a room devoted to a collection of New England transcendentalists assembled by a librarian collector, Harold Kittle. And somehow the existence of that room, and I think also I will leave it to you to visualize whose library you would like to surround yourself with so that you feel again you're creating an atmosphere, a mise-en-scene. No. Then we come to collection development. I suspect that rare book libraries and smaller institutions place emphasis on special collections in limited areas plus an assortment of rarities. I think that if the objective is student use, collection development should have an entirely different cast and orientation. I talked to Bonnie Rosenthal about it and his term was a representative collection. It does not have to be expensive. He said, I could assemble. He said, you have some manuscripts, some incunabula. You assemble a group of material. And I think that if I were to take a criteria, I would say the librarian should be able to offer some material of interest to students in every field of study in the university. Not that difficult. Doesn't have to be the rarest material. I felt I'm interested in geography, and I picked up, I felt I have no incunabula. I felt I ought to have one. I picked up a Salinas that is not a terribly good copy. I think I paid $100 or $150 for it. I think there are very few rare book libraries that couldn't select a half dozen in Canabula so that they would feel if a student came in, they would be able to go back to the beginning. Now, I think an ideal one would be if you had some material bearing on every course of the curriculum. In other words, I'm suggesting that the nucleus for collection development should be the material that is taught at that university in the individual departments and the field. And just as a librarian trying to stack a reserve list would ask the professors giving a course, what should I buy for this year's students? I think there should be a dialogue and say, what are the kinds of things that would make it possible for you to encourage your students to come into my rare book loom and look at something in here so I can communicate with them on their terms, not mine. Now, an example. When I have after-dinner guests, I don't show my personal favorites, as many people. You know, people say, what's your best, what's your favorite? That isn't what I'm interested in. I'm saying, what are you interested in? I take it as a challenge to pull out something I have that will speak to him. And I think this is the approach in terms of the organization of what I see as a representative collection of specimen material. Now, another thing, I don't think purchases are necessarily the only source of this material. I think the stacks of any university library of any size are full of earlier works of insufficient rarity of value to have been culled for the rare book library. Yet this may be precisely the kind of material. If you go through the Columbia stacks, I am sure there is a vast amount of secondary material that just doesn't quite deserve rare book room treatment, and yet would be ideal for this kind of use. Another one, if a university has duplicates, trade them with other rare book libraries. 
I feel librarians should work more closely with each other and with their collectors and not feel so dependent on dealers. I say this in deference, the deal is tremendously important, but if the rare book libraries dispose of their duplicates for dealers, they circulate not to other rare book libraries, they circulate in a broader network. I think that if rare book libraries say, we want to be a network of our own, we will collaborate together. What we don't need, no longer need, somebody else does need. And that was one of the points that I made in the remarks at Brown, where there's a lot of Americana, early Americana that is not present on the West Coast, multiple copies in the East Coast. The East, West Coast has a lot of California material that's absent. And I see this as another area, interlibrary cooperation on an increased scale. Now, I was going to mention one other current thing, but I think I've run long enough, and I'm simply going to close. Say, I submit that the university rare book librarian should seek to play a more active role in the educational process, not only as a guardian of the sacred flame, but as a missionary devoted to the propagation of faith.